Auntie, bonjour, hello everyone. Welcome to Research Time Season 2, Episode 3. Today I have a very special guest with me. Not only is she an educational colleague, but she's also my best friend. So I'm really excited to hold this wonderful, engaging conversation with her. And I think that she offers such wonderful intentionality and also education with this uh, topic that we will be soonly discussing. So stay tuned. Hello! Hi! How are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm happy that you're joining me today. Yes, thank you for having me. Ah, thank you for coming. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So, um, before we get started uh, today, uh, we're just going to do a land acknowledgement as we're both on Treaty 7. I think that's really important to incorporate. Um, So, we are currently located on the traditional territory of Mohkinsis of Treaty 7, uh, which belongs to the Nisitapi of Siksika, Gainai, Bagani, Sutena and Yahinokora, which is Stony Nakora, and also uh, re, uh, mm-hmm. Treaty 7 is also home to Métis Nation Region 3, uh, which is my nation. Um, so we would like to acknowledge all the nations, indigenous and non, who work, live, and play, and help us steward this mm-hmm. land and be a part of us. Um, with this, we always want to encourage uh, reconciliation, being at the forefront of our conversations, of our issues, and being able to ensure that everyone works together in harmony with love and with um, exceptional care for one another, which is what hopefully our conversation will support our efforts with today. But nonetheless, I'm really excited and humbled to be able to spend this hour with you. Yeah, well, thank you for having me and I'm excited. Thank you. So. <laughs> You and I, we have had a fabulous <laughs> friendship history together. Um, you and I met in university. I think second year was when we really hit our wonderful friendshipness, mm-hmm. and it was because we were both a part of the education undergrad society. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it was like 2015, maybe we met, and we've kind of been friends since then. So yeah, I'm excited to be here. Me too. And um, even last, and exactly, I just can't believe that it's already been a year, but even I remember you visiting me in Ottawa exactly a year to like this day. And to know that we have just been there and still here and still, you know, away from each other, but still together nonetheless, I just think it's really beautiful. And I'm very appreciative to have you in my life and to be able to. Yeah, me too. You are an educator. You work very closely with kids of all uh, forms, abilities, uh, and you have immense compassion with working with these students. So that's why our article today is very exceptional uh, to being able to uh, have a conversation about this notion. So Kayla, what uh, resource did we decide to unpack together? Um, So we kind of found an article about um, working inclusive, kind of that inclusive ed um, platform sort of. Um, and it was an article that was specific to Alberta. Um, it's called Measuring Inclusive Education Outcomes in Alberta. Um, and it was kind of just comparing Alberta education to other parts of the world, um, specifically in North America and Europe, just to see what Alberta is doing for inclusive education. That's perfect. That's like the best way to sum it up, I think. And in regards to, um, you know, measuring inclusive education in this way, it talks about processes to be able to do so and how there's a lot of systemic processes that also incorporates these notions being high level 
decision-making conversations to be able to designate to school boards uh, to be able to then support students who then need it uh, within various capacities. So it's um, very, it's like, it takes a whole community. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I did kind of like in the article how they compared um, inclusive ed practices in different areas, even though it was in very different areas for mm -hmm. your, in Europe, for example, um, they have very different culture, but they still compared um, kind of the goals and what they're accomplishing there to what Alberta is doing. So in spite of the fact the culture is really different, there was some clear comparisons there. Um, and I also liked how it addressed the fact um, that inclusive education practices need to be done completely and thoroughly. So that means that every, um, for every aspect of a school division and not just necessarily in certain classrooms or in certain areas. That's really good that it incorporated these notions too, because it's, it's so important that it's incorporating all those because it's good to know that we're all kind of experiencing the same things and going through the same things and knowing that we're not alone and being able to sort these notions out. So it's really good that, you know, community can potentially be, be built here and be uh, supported here. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's kind of the impact that we want to have on our students, um, on all of our students, but specifically those students who might need a bit of extra support in the classroom and just making them feel like there really is that sense of community that's backing them and supporting them. That's perfect. Ah, that's fabulous. I love that. Um, so Kayla, um, I guess that kind of alludes to what's going on here. And so, so it brings us to the question, what does an inclusive classroom look like to you? Um, so to me, I think it just means like just that, that it is inclusive and that it kind of includes and encompasses all um, and that there's room for every different ability and skill level within your classroom. Um, and I think it's really important that teachers understand that they're what sets the tone for the classroom and they're what sets the tone for the amount of respect students have for each other, no matter what their abilities are. Um, and I think it's important that teachers also understand that that sense of empathy that they give off um, they can really project to other students and that in turn allows students to treat each other a certain way. So I think it's important to kind of respect that all the time and just to recognize the fact that as a teacher you're the one setting the tone for that. Mm, that's such a profound notion too because I feel that with educators it takes almost a while to be able to build that practice, to feel comfortable, to be able to take that on within the classroom and then to then take that on within their students and to ensure that that's supported within students. And I think it takes a teacher to be able to unpack that notion of empathy for themselves to really understand what that means to them. And then thinking about who's actually inside the classroom and who is then going to be affected within the classroom. So I guess in regards to that, like what do you think could potentially support educators to really enable empathy uh, within the classroom? Um, I just think it's important no matter what age that teachers recognize um, that students are kind of watching everything that they do so that your behavior and your responses to students of any ability um, is seen by all of your other students and just making sure that you're doing it in a way that represents and shows that you have empathy for all of your students um, and then just recognizing that the other kids will also pick up on that. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think that's really fabulous because I, I think that there's also a notion here that that's really important to also further unpack um, because I know with students, uh, you know, sometimes they, they develop 
you know, forms of bullying and, and they're, they're able to then talk to, to other kids and such in particular ways. And for educators, um, it's really important to have these conversations within the classroom and to be able to talk about how, you know, this could potentially be harmful to students with, say, with disabilities. So then conversations need to be centered around empathy, inclusion, love, compassion, and ensuring that students feel secure within their own environments. So with that being said, there's there's a notion called ableism, which is uh, discrimination against um, folks with disabilities. So as educators, we need to be able to dismantle this notion of ableism and ensure that our kids are really being inclusive of everyone within their classroom. And it takes an educator and a school community. It takes, it takes everyone uh, to be able to then dismantle this notion and to be able to then support kids of all types. So um, I guess that, that alludes to um, the whole school community, the process of it, because it is a process to technically dismantle. What do inclusive processes look like to you? Um, so I think it's important just to recognize that it is a process and that it's not just that end result and that um, no matter where you are in your career or what grade of students you're working with, that that can probably always be improved upon. Um, and then as well that we can continue improving upon that um, at larger levels, whether that be our school districts or within our entire province. Um, and just making sure that as teachers individually we're designing different learning experiences so that all of our students can be involved um, at any age and in any skill level um, and recognizing that this is going to look a lot different each year when you have different students um, and then just making sure you're kind of adapting and changing enough for those students based off of their needs um, and then just making sure um, you're trying to get them in to get them coded as soon as possible just so mm -hmm. that they can receive the supports that they might need. And what does the process of coding look like? Like, uh, for example, within my experience, I can only speak to my practicum experiences where my kids were already coded. Um, right. I was just supporting their needs, um, in particular to their learning plan. So I was already given the opportunity to unpack the learning plan. So what would it look like for an educator if you have suspicions of a student that may have an IPP, so what, what would the process then look like to be able to support that student and their needs and ensure that they get the support that they need? So um, you'll be aware right off, like right in September, which of your kids have IPPs and have different needs. Um, and then as the year progresses, if you feel that there are students who might have a different learning ability, um, you can submit them to be tested. And then if they're tested, then moving forward, if they are given a code, um, they'll be given an IPP. And then the teacher is responsible for maintaining that every year. Um, typically, students are tested and coded um, no younger than eight for the most part. Um, and with that being said, once they hit about grade three, there is a lot of testing that's done. But that's not like that's not to say that they won't be tested younger or older. Okay, that's good too to make that distinction too, because I know that there's, you know, times where folks may not be tested at early stages and then that later affects their growth moving forwards within the system, right? Like within education, then their growth and then their education all encompassing. It's it's really important, I guess, for students to really raise awareness of why these conversations might be important to hold within the classroom and like how learning looks different per individual per person and we see this with differentiated plans uh, which means ensuring that educators are really putting in specific needs to students to better support their learnings based on 
what they need, <laughs> how, how then teachers can then support that. But with that, that's how students can potentially fall through the cracks, though, too, if it's not caught earlier on as well. So, yeah, raising awareness would, would be really important. So how would you incorporate those kinds of teachings and those kinds of uh, lessons within the classroom? Um, well, I think kind of just raising the awareness that kids have different abilities is kind of a conversation you can always be having with your students um, and just kind of kind of showcasing to them that they all do have different abilities, whether that means that they have a code and they have a disability or that they're just better at some things than others. Um, mm -hmm. And just making sure that all of your students are aware it's okay to have different abilities and that some might be better than others at different things. Um, for example, you might have students who are really strong in gym, but not necessarily strong in your classroom, or they might have really... Um, like artistic skills or athletic skills or whatever, and just making sure that they all know that they um, are in a space that they're comfortable being themselves and letting their skills show. That's beautiful. And I think being able to share stories really supports that kind of learning or being able to share perspectives or experiences um, can really support kids. Yeah, I think it's good to make sure you can reflect on different organizations or different leaders you might have in your district and stuff, just because it does bring in a different perspective. And I think sometimes it allows kids to feel like they can open up more just because it's somebody who's a bit more removed from the situation. Absolutely. I know, I know uh, it's not necessarily related to our conversation, but sometimes it is. I don't know. But talking about like sex ed as well, right? Like when we get a partner community member to be able to come in to teach our kids, that's what we did within my school. And I just saw the kids just immediately become more comfortable to ask questions. And of course, they're still like anonymous and they're still in like a question box, but still that ability to ask a complete stranger questions, there's some form of comfortability there that I think needs to be incorporated more potentially within classroom frameworks, especially when conversations could be a little bit more difficult or conversations might be a little bit more comfortable and, you know, asking questions that you really are thinking about and really considering and very personal too sometimes. So, you know, ensuring that like there's a community liaison that you could mm -hmm. potentially talk to could be a really good idea. And I think it would be absolutely wonderful for, for teachers to really uh, take that on as a resource. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think just making sure too, if that's not available to you, that you have set a good relationship with your kids, just so that they do feel like they can have some open and honest communication with you as the year progresses. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's really important too. And I think that also leads to like the school environment just in general, like how, how are the conversations about accessibility? What are the conversations about differentiation? What are the conversations about inclusionary actions within classroom practices? What do your lesson plans look like? Are they ensuring that it's able-bodied for all bodies within your classroom? So it's really ensuring all educators are asking themselves these questions within their practice and still feeling comfortable to be able to lead these conversations nonetheless. Yeah, for sure. With that too, I guess that kind of alludes to beginning educators and then these beginning educators going on their experience to develop these abilities, develop these notions within their practice, their pedagogy. Um, so how can beginning educators begin to prepare for their inclusive classroom and for their students of varying needs? Um, so I think the main, kind of the, the biggest learning curve is definitely just recognizing that it's about that equity and not necessarily equality. Um, and I've had this conversation with my students this year and just basically saying everybody is going to get what they need to be successful and that might like not look the same for everybody. 
Some people might get more kind of time and support in different areas than others. Um, and just making sure that they know that that's okay. But then also making sure that you check in with yourself as a teacher and recognize that you won't be spending the same amount of time with all of your kids or on work for them. Um, and just recognizing that that's what it takes for them to be successful. Um, and then as well, um, recognizing as a beginning teacher just that kids are super empathetic for the most part and like that's what makes them so great is that they are kids and that they um, they have the ability to feel that way still so just explaining that conversation of that equity to them and recognizing that they probably will be sympathetic to each other um, and then as well kind of a tangible thing for beginning teachers is using um, UDL or the universal design for learning um, just because it allows you to really um, take into account the disability you're kind of working with in your classroom and it gives you some really tangible um, ways to overcome some challenges you might face when you're planning. That's really good considerations and I think with specifically with UDL too because it's it's you know as you said it's universal design for learning. I think there's a lot of potential to use it as a framework for beginning to know your students, understanding your students mm -hmm. and then digging in deep even deeper uh, within the framework <laughs> to then differentiate per, per student needs and then what they need to. Because I know when it comes to, you know, students with disabilities as well, like some disabilities are invisible where they will be difficult to find or to see or to be able to accommodate for. So ensuring, you know, that educators are at least taking the time to dive in deeper within supporting all student needs um, and ensuring that the kids with the disabilities are really heavily supported. So it really does allow for, you know, accommodation, allows for equity. Like what you said too, equity is key. It's interesting with equity, I guess, because I always think of that, that picture. Um, yes, that's what I show the kids, yeah. <laughs> that's so perfect. It's such a good picture because what what the picture is showing us for folks who are listening rather than being able to see i wish i could show you the picture right now um but it's uh three people who are aligned trying to look over a fence and you see the levels of uh, equality and then you see the levels of equity so with equality you see everyone just on the ground and everyone's just trying to look over the fence two people cannot see over the fence and one person can because they're at least tall enough so they already were pre-designed to be able to have the ability to see over the fence while the others just didn't because they're too short. But when equity is in of question, there's specific levels that each person is given to then be able to see over the fence. So that allows each of them to be able to go through the path to be able to receive the same experience, but they just did, needed different needs to be able to see it. So it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful picture <laughs> that explains it perfectly. <laughs> and I recommend for you to check it out. So look <laughs> under fence and equity and, and it should pop up on Google, but I really do highly recommend to, to look into that. But it's, it's really important in education. Well, I think it's important to either show that um, kind of infographic to your kids or to have that conversation with them right off the bat, just because then I think it prevents them from feeling like they have a right to have the same things as the other kids, even though they don't necessarily do, um, just to kind of keep things more fair and setting that tone right from the beginning of the year. I think that's a really important conversation too. I think that's that's wonderful to, to be able to unpack with the class. And I wonder what kind 
of inquiry could potentially be created based from that question. I think there could be a lot of wonderful class projects that actually looks at equity and for kids to understand that. Yeah, for sure. I think there, there really could be, especially depending on the grade level that you're working with. Absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. So further with beginning educators and ensuring that they're prepping for their inclusive classroom too, like usually, as you also mentioned too, educators will be given IPPs at the beginning of the year. But then what happens if educators see, you know, students who might require extra support within the classrooms? What would you do inside that situation? For students who already are on an IPP? Who aren't, but oh, should who be. aren't. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, you can submit kind of to have them assessed. Um, and depending, especially depending on your division, it probably will take a little bit longer than you might expect. Maybe not, depends. Um, but then they'll assess them and they will see if they actually, they do have a deeper learning disability. If they don't, then you kind of just um, accommodate the best you can and carry on. And lots of times they do. And then from there, you can adapt what you're teaching them. So you won't necessarily be teaching different curriculum, you'll be teaching the same curriculum. It's just their means of learning to get there will be different than the rest of your students. I love that. And I love how, you know, in relation to the article too, that I know that it also talks about that notion as well, where curriculum will still be the same remotely. It would just look different with the past. And I think that's such a important consideration for folks to understand when it comes to, you know, this form of differentiated learning and the IPP plans is that students will still receive the same education. It's just going to look different for the path of where it needs to get to in order for that student to get there. I always say like a journey. It's always a journey. Education yeah. is just... <laughs> but it's beautiful because there still is that landmark where, where a kid will get to with the right support and with the right, you know, empathy and care of an educator like yourself to be sure that they will get to where they need to go. Yeah, for sure. And here, we also have a, a deep question, a big question, uh, one that requires a lot of folks to really think about, especially when it comes to, you know, historical notions of folks with disabilities and talking about major notions because it's stemming from society. It's stemming from already uh, enforced preconceived notions of how people with disabilities look like, what they're going to be, uh, how how they are, but all of that is simply just incorrect. And, and this is what needs to be met. This is what needs to be disrupted. So what might be other forms of systemic changes that could offer deeper support for inclusive classroom instruction, uh, for differentiated supports and for teacher education? Um, so I think um, a great way to do this within your classroom, if you're feeling that this is something you would want to do that's very tangible and kind of in your future, is using that response to intervention model. So kind of just grouping your students based off of their abilities, and it would be different groups across different subject areas um, and different skills depending on what you're teaching, just so you can have a little bit more um, of a target with goal setting for your students and really just taking their ability as a group and seeing how far you can get them to grow. And then as well, within the larger system, um, those smaller class sizes, just making it a, like making you able to get to more students and have that one-on-one -on -one time so that they can have a bit more growth. But yeah, just kind of any supports like that. Yeah, absolutely. 
I know that this is something that I've seen on the Facebook sphere a lot or the Twitter sphere and the Instagram sphere is, you know, a discussion about uh, classroom sizes. <laughs> so do you think that would support uh, student learning or hinder it? <laughs> well, I definitely think smaller class sizes would support student learning a bit better just um, mm -hmm. so they can get some more one-on-one -on -one time and some more kind of targeted time with their teacher. Um, but there's lots of different factors that play into that that we need to be aware of. So. Absolutely. And there's a lot of, uh, and, and when it calls for systemic changes, that also means advocacy and that also means uh, government decisions, basically. And sometimes funding is majorly at the question here. There's a lot of advocacy that still occurs. And as an educator with, you know, teaching students with disabilities and ensuring for an inclusive classroom, there are ways for you to advocate for your students and that's okay for you to advocate for your students because they need you to be in their corner. They need you to be an ally. They need you to be their supporter and to really ensure their learning needs so that they get the equitable resources support needed in order for them to succeed. So that alludes to you know, systemic conversations, which means broader conversations with educational communities. So this can incorporate organizations like the ATA, um, but also folks who are working with other groups, being being like Indigenous uh, partners, being LGBTQ2S uh, partners, being sure that everyone who is at the table is at the table to make these decisions based on student needs. And that's looking at it holistically as well that every perspective is included, everyone's voice is being shared, and everyone's support is then being listened to. And that's what needs to be occurring within these high-level conversations, is for folks who are a part of these communities to be able to have a voice and advocate for student needs so that students can then be awarded and afforded the opportunity to be able to then be holistically sound to to listen to all forms of needs so they can be the best citizen possible uh, within their society, right? So I think that's what we're wanting to work towards is at least for our students to be inclusive human beings and to be compassionate and to be when high level conversations occur like this that is incorporating everyone's needs, it will only support student empathetical and, and to care about their neighbors, right? So in very impactful ways. Yeah, for sure. I think, like you said, having all those voices at the table um, is definitely beneficial. Um, and just making sure we're having those conversations as often as we can to, like you said, advocate and kind of get some awareness out there. Absolutely. It's key. It's important. <laughs> oh, fabulous. And there's another notion here, too, um, as what's already previously been unpacked, and um, it is our last question for tonight as well. Um, but there is a colonial history of how folks with disabilities are treated in society um, that remains to this day. So how might we support our students to carry inclusive characteristics and to treat everyone with kindness, respect, and with equity? Um, so I think the main thing that I've touched on a few times tonight is just having um, teaching your students that empathy piece and making sure you're setting um, a good culture within your classroom and within your school um, whether that be for like you mentioned um, Indigenous groups or students with disabilities or anything like that um, and uh, one way you can do this is to make sure your students kind of feel like they're being helpful and they're being little helpers 
um, by getting them to help and volunteer within your classroom and your school, whether that be with students who have maybe a disability or students who don't, um, and just making sure that they feel like they're giving back and that they're successful. That's beautiful. I really love that idea of helpers. So how would you um, coordinate that within your within your classroom? How would you, how would you go about the uh, planning of that? Well, one easy way is if um, you have students that are um, kind of really shining in one subject area, getting them to go around and help the others. Um, and then other ways you can do this is, especially if you're working with older students, kind of the older students within your, um, within your school, to allow them to kind of be buddy helpers with the younger students. Um, of course, this is a little bit harder right now with COVID just because they don't want the cohorts mixing. Um, but hopefully one day we can get back to stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> That's beautiful. I really love that idea because I think that also offers uh, a beautiful way for community to be built as well and for, you know, inclusionary uh, reactions and, and conversations and partnerships, relationships to be formed because of that. Because I think that's really, uh, really beautiful. And I love that. I just love, I love mentorship. I love that support and that community support. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Good idea. I love that. Um, and for me, for, for being able to respond to this notion, I think just listening to stories of folks with, uh, with disabilities, again, with inappropriate ways and appropriate environments, potential community partners coming in, but also books that you read to your kids would also be very important to uh, be able to unpack. But prior to unpacking that with your students, I think it's really important that your uh, books that you are choosing are really inclusive within it so that they en enable the notion of diversity and acknowledge that disabilities look various ways to various people. And as long as that's appropriately shown within that book, I think that's an appropriate resource to then use within your classroom. So be sure as educators that you are reading the books prior to you teaching them, because I think that's really important work for you to be able to do uh, for you to positively affect change inside your classroom so that all kids are really looking at this in uh, positive and in incorporating ways where it really supports their perspectives and their experiences, uh, which is really key and important. But I think that's 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 what I think, at least when it comes to teaching about empathy and, and kindness, respect, equity, and just ensuring that teachers are taking the time to really be able to impact this again within themselves, being sure that they're aware of what they're doing, what they're teaching, what their lesson plans look like, and knowing that there's a community to support them too, that they're reaching out, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, making sure um, you recognize that there's, there's no students that are too young to do this, um, and that it's never too early to kind of get started with that attitude in your classroom. I love that. Ah, that's a perfect way to finish our conversation, Kayla. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again so much for being able to take this time with me, being able to unpack this notion with me. I think it's a really important conversation. I hope one that continues uh, further on with uh, various learning environments and educational uh, conversations. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for having me. I think the work that you're doing is, um, is impactful and it's important. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Kayla. Sure. Awesome. Well, I hope you have a fabulous night and thank you again, all viewers and listeners being able to listen to our conversation today. Again, always feel free to reach out. If you have any questions about anything that we've said at all tonight, uh, please feel free to reach out. Uh, happy to unpack them with you. And with that, have a fabulous evening.